As we come to our message today, if you've got your Bibles, be turning to Hebrews chapter 1. Over the past month, we've been looking at this opening exordium, or however you want to phrase it, of this letter to the Hebrews. And uh, there is much here that's of great importance. You might ask, why would we spend so much time on these four verses? Why would we do that? Well, because they are vitally important to the letter and vitally important to all of Scripture, to us understanding who Christ is. And so they help us to see the fullness of who He is and what, in fact, He came to do. After all, the subject of this letter really is that Christ is of the greatest dignity, honor, and glory. And the Scriptures want us to know this. In fact, the Old Testament Scriptures point to Him and are fulfilled in Him. And all this is the argument of the author of the letter to the Hebrews. All of this. And so he begins right out of the gate with a bang saying, We want you to know who Christ is. That He is the Christ, the anointed Messiah. The one for whom we were awaiting. And more than that, He is to be honored and recognized as the perfect prophet of God. All these mediatory roles we've been looking at, the the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, all fulfilled because He is the God-man. Who better to be mediator than one who is fully God and fully man? And so we see it, in fact, uh, it goes on to say not only that He is the perfect prophet, uh, before the prophets had come of old, uh, the, the servants of God who had given part and peace of the message, but here, fully and finally, God has sent now His own Son, We've talked about the contrast and uh, how uh, there is much being said there. We had a whole sermon just on that. But it's not just that. He's also the Messiah, this messianic king, this one who is glorious. Now, we all knew that the Messiah would be the son of David, right? The inheritor of the throne of David, the king of Israel. We all knew that. But this scripture reminds us that Psalm 2 spoke of him. Ask, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. Not just one nation, all the nations. And we stagger to think about that, how Christ is king over all nations. But it goes even beyond that. Because it speaks of that He is the heir of all things here. Right? He is the heir of all things. It all is His. Not just the nations. All things belong to Him. He is the heir of of all things. He's been appointed, and we talked about that, how he's appointed in his work as mediator, as the heir of all things. This one who is the seed of David, the but greater than David, the seed of Abram, but greater than Abram. Abram, the father of the nations. Now his seed comes into the world as the inheritor of all the nations. My friends, this is talking about glorious things that have been revealed throughout the entirety of Scripture. And if that wasn't enough, we looked last Sunday at this These two phrases here, who being the brightness, the apogasma, the the radiance of the glory of God and the express image or the idea of the imprint of God's substance. This one we hear today described in yet another way. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Upholds all things by the word of his power. Now that is staggering to think about, um, but it's easy to just pass through it. Just like we might have a a few weeks ago when we talked about through whom all things were made, it would be easy to just go, oh, that's an interesting thing to say and move on and not consider the fact that it is through Christ that all things that are made were made. 
All created things exist because of Him, and as we looked in Colossians, and for Him. But now you have a, another phrase, and in fact, William Lane, a scholar on this passage, takes these opening verses and sees them as a chiastic structure. If you remember from our studies years ago in the Psalms, chiastic means kind of parallel. There's an A matching, B matching, and so on and so forth. He thinks in the chiastic structure here that what matches up is through whom He created the worlds, and now through whom all things are upheld, that these are parallel statements. And of course, they, it makes sense that they would be. But again, we want to notice the combination of things here and think about them. So again, we looked last week at the fact that He is the, the radiance of God's glory and the imprint of His substance, and this is the very thing that Christ Himself said to Philip, isn't it? Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't know me? When you see me, you see the Father. So again, we've looked at all of this, but today we want to look at this particular phrase, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. So as we think about this, I want us to read the text one more time. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now again, uh, as we look at this text today, I want us to consider two points. First of all, comprehending a staggering truth. On its surface, this is a staggering truth. And second of all, comprehending an awesome glory. Because this is going to say something amazing about the glory of Christ. So beginning first with this idea of comprehending a staggering truth. Last Sunday we looked at two phrases. Today we'll look at one. So it should go a little bit easier for us, and hopefully it'll be a little quicker today. But what a phrase it is. Trailing right on this idea that Christ is the apogosma or radiance of the Father. He's not only the one through whom all things were created, but now we hear He is the one through whom all things are sustained or upheld. You can look at the text again. And upholding all things by the word of His power upholding all things. The ESV, if you have one of those, says He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The ESV also puts it that way, upholds. Either way you look at it, this is a dynamic intention. He's either upholding or He upholds. And we'll look at why that is in a moment. Now you don't have to study this text very deeply to appreciate the staggering truth that is being told to us. Christ is being said to uphold and sustain all created things. Not in the past, although He did it in the past, in the present hour. Through all time that things have been created, Christ has upheld them and sustained them. This one, this Christ, Pharaoh, upholds, pass, all things, everything, everything. Now, such a statement brings up two questions one scholar said that must be answered, and we're going to try to answer them throughout the text of this sermon. First of all, what does this upholding mean? What does it mean to say that Christ is upholding all things? And second of all, how does He accomplish it? 
Now, the text tells us, but we want to think about it. How does he accomplish it? So we're going to try to answer these questions along the way as we look through this text. One thing that we want to say again is that this text speaks to the glory and majesty of our King, Jesus Christ. It immediately sets aside certain misconceptions about God. You know, one of the historical phase in America has been this idea of deism. Maybe you are familiar with deism. Most of our founding fathers, or at least a good chunk of them, were deists. And this was the argument that God did involve himself in the creation of the world, but then he stepped away. They often talk about it as the divine clockmaker who comes in and sets the clock, winds it up. You might even say builds the clock and then winds the clock and then walks away. This is a God who would create the universe, set in order the laws that govern the universe, and then just turn away. Now, my friends, this text tells you that is not true or even possible. Because this text tells us that Christ is constantly upholding all things, sustaining all things, keeping them together, holding them in place, holding them together. My friends, that is something to think about. If God stopped even for a moment to sustain and uphold creation, it would spell utter disaster for us. The very universe that God created would become uninhabitable. Now, more than that, the universe would fall into chaos. One of the Puritans said, if God stopped upholding the universe, it would begin to cease to exist once more. Now, how does that work? I'm not sure. But it's saying something pretty significant, isn't it? That all things not only exist because God created them, but they continue to exist as they exist because He sustains them. And that's the only reason. So, how does He do it? Well, the text tells us, by the word of His power. By the word of His power. F.F. Bruce, a scholar many of you have heard me quote before, he thinks this is a Hebrewism, like a, a Jewish idiom that means by His powerful word. It makes very much sense that it would mean that. So how does he speak this into existence, all the cosmos, by his powerful word? How does he sustain it? By his powerful word. You know, uh, we spoke a few weeks ago, I guess, about the centurion who said, I know something of authority. He said, I'm a man over others and under others, and I know this to be true. If I give a command, my inferior officers must obey. There is no doubt about it. If I say jump, they jump. If I say leap, they leap. And I realize you have authority. All you need to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. My friends, that's only possible if Christ is this Christ, the one whose authoritative word controls and governs all things. He simply says the word and it happens. So again, we see that in this text. Now, If we think for a moment that that is something not found elsewhere in the Scriptures, we could turn very quickly to Colossians chapter 1, a place that we turned a few weeks ago when we talked about Christ as the Creator of all things. Colossians 1 verse 16 says, and you'll remember this from a few weeks ago, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him, and for Him. Now, we didn't continue to read 17 at that time, but look at 17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. 
Now that word for consist actually means to continue to stand, to continue to function, to have a place. You may remember in Romans, we, the same root word is used where it says it's not as if the Word of God has failed to stand. In other words, if Christ for a moment stopped in this function, the entire created cosmos would fail to stand, fall apart, be of no use in the sense that we think of it. It would collapse. My friends, it only stands because Christ holds it together and continues to make it stand. Again, the creation itself requires the powerful interaction of God if it's to continue. It's literally upheld by His word of power or His powerful word. Spurgeon, considering this great truth, said this, Just think of it. This great world of ours is upheld by Christ's word. If He did not speak it into continued existence, it would go back into the nothingness from which it sprang. There exists not a being who exists independent from its mediator, save only the ever-blessed Father and the Spirit. Just as a foundation upholds a house, so does Christ sustain all things by His powerful Word. Now that's a staggering truth, isn't it? Just as your foundation, if it's functioning, upholds your house, so the created cosmos exists and it is upheld by Christ. Now what's just as staggering as that is the realization that some people come away from reading the Scriptures failing to see the deity of Christ. They say, where does the Bible say it? Where does the Bible say it? Why have we spent so much time in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4? Because here's a place where it says it over and over again. Who else could this describe? The author of Hebrews will go on to say, of what angel could this be said? Of what created being could this be said? No, this can only be said of God. The one who brings forth fully and finally the Word. The one who, in whom all things are created. The one who is appointed heir of all things. The brightness of God's glory. The express image of His person. Who upholds all things by the Word of His power. My friends, that describes God. God. Now, as we think about this for a moment, it's important to say this. Because one scholar put it this way. What is being ascribed to the Son here is the providential government of the universe, which is a function of God Himself. There's no question that if you knew nothing else of Scripture, you would come to this passage and have to explain it in some way that Christ is God. Now, whether you're going to try to keep it in some um, error of modalism and say, well, this is the same God as the Father, He just presents Himself in different modes, Or you're going to come to the correct doctrinal answer, which is we serve a Trinitarian God. You're going to have to come to the realization that Christ is God when you look at this text. For no one else could do these things. And that's clear. The intention of the Spirit-filled author of this letter is unmistakable. He's inviting us into the great and staggering mystery of this powerful Christ, the God-man, Creator, Sustainer, and Savior. Now, To me, that's pretty staggering to think about. It's a staggering truth that all things are sustained by His powerful Word, but even that doesn't plumb the depths of what this text is telling us. This little phrase tells us so much more, and that's because the word, the key word for today, ferro, which is found in the root word ferron, uh, doesn't mean simply to subsist or sustain 
or uphold. It's not a passive word. It means a great deal more. And it's important, and it's been recognized since the days of the early church fathers who spoke about what does this text mean? How do we wrestle with the fullness of what this phrase is telling us about Christ? As the scholar Peter O'Brien stated, this word includes not only intention, but direction and purpose. Direction and purpose. Some of the early church fathers would compare this text against the uh, image from mythology of Atlas. They said, you know, Atlas was said to be a sustainer of the world. And what did they mean? The world rests upon his shoulders. He holds up the world by his might. And the church father said, that's not at all what we're saying about Christ. He doesn't just lift up the world or hold it together. He moves, directs, and governs the world. See, that's the fullness of what this word means. He has always been sustaining and directing as He now is currently. It's not just about the physical integrity of the universe, but the very purpose for which God created the universe. Erasmus, in dealing with this word as he was translating the New Testament, said this, I'm convinced of this, this word does not mean the same as bearing or upholding only, but acting, moving, and guiding. It's not merely universal maintenance that's thought of here. Again, that would be glorious, wouldn't it? To say that Christ is so powerful that He maintains the universe as your building super might maintain your apartment building. He keeps it running, right? The the water keeps flowing. The power keeps turning on. But that is not at all what's being described here. It may be a part of what's being described here. But it goes beyond that because this word Pharaoh means more than that. It means that God is literally moving the universe along according to the will and plan of God. And that Christ is the one doing it. Christ is the one who is not only sustaining all of creation, but governing it and moving it along. Have you thought about that? And what that means, the glory of the one that this speaks of. The glory of the one of whom we are reading about today. The one that we've gathered to worship today. The one who not only created and preserves the universe, but quite literally governs all created things. And my friends, if you have a small view of God, this text is staggering to behold. Staggering to behold. Because you know what? The Christ that's preached in many churches today is a small Christ. Almost a pitiful Christ. You know, just out there hoping out there, maybe it'll all pan out in the end. Maybe we can, maybe this plan that the Father and I and the Spirit put together in eternity past will, will come, to, come to fruition. That isn't the Christ that's spoken of here. The Christ who is guiding and leading and moving all of creation toward its end. Now, Philip Hughes, who is one of the 20th century's greatest scholars on this text, in fact, uh, one time I was reading a person who said, if you read only one book on Hebrews, get William Lane. If you can afford only one book on Hebrews, he said, get William Lane's. But if that's the case, get someone to buy you Philip Hughes. <laughs> and uh, you, when you read him, you'll understand why. I want you to hear what he said about it, about this passage. Christ, the eternal Logos, the eternal Word of God is carrying forward and onward all things to a consummation implicit in their beginning. 
Not only did the universe come into existence through the sun, but the whole created order is sustained in being and carried along to its appointed destiny by the word of his power. Now, some people don't like that kind of wording. That he's governing the universe toward where it's going. But I'm going to ask you to come back to that in just a moment as we close and to ask yourself, if that isn't true, how could God guarantee any of his promises? How could he do it? It would be hard to find a more staggering portrait of the awesome glory of Christ than this short phrase in the Scriptures. And likewise, it would be difficult to find a picture more antithetical to the way Christ is spoken of today in most cases. He is all-glorious and all-powerful. That's what this text is telling us. He is all-glorious and all-powerful. The universe continues to exist because of His powerful Word, yes, but much more than that. We can trust the Word of God to accurately tell us the future, our future in Christ, because it's guaranteed by the One who is quite literally guiding and directing pos, all things, everything, according to the plan of God. So when theologians use words like sovereignty of God, this is what they're talking about. Right? Nothing's left to chance. God's not sitting here going, well, I've made these promises and hopefully I'll turn out to be telling the truth. God cannot lie. It's not possible for Him to lie. But that can only be true if He can guarantee what He's promised. And if the universe is outside His control, He cannot do it. He cannot do it. Prophecy would just be like hoping it turns out. Hoping that it turns out. That is not how the Word speaks of what God has spoken. What He says will come to fruition. Why? Because He is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Now that's just good logic. But it's also told us in the Word of God. So this is the God we serve. I want to close with this. A God so great that He could create all things out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing could create all things. That's a concept that staggers our mind. Nothing existed and then God created everything that exists. But my friends, that's how powerful God is. The same God who sustains it all, guiding it all according to His sovereign plan. I want to come back to this thought again because it's important. If that were not true, how could God guarantee the promises that He has made to us in the Scriptures? How could He guarantee them if He doesn't have this level of power? Because when I make promises, they don't always come to pass. Even where I try to make promises that I can keep. Here's a couple of problems. I can't foresee the future. I can't control everything that's going to happen over the course of the next few weeks. I can't foresee events. I can't control events. I can't control anything. Hardly, right? We recognize that as human beings. Our power to control things is very limited. And certainly my ability to see what will come to pass is limited. And so I pray that as we promise things, we often say, yeah, I promise, I'll I'll do that. Maybe we don't use the word promise, we say, yeah, I'll do that. We have to recognize that when we say that to one another, we say it in the limitations of our humanity. Right? I'm not able to control what national emergency might happen between now and the end of the week. And neither can you. But I praise a God who can a God who can control all things, a God who can govern all things, a God who is over and above all things. You see, my promise might fail to stand, despite my best effort to make it stand. I might say, 
hey, Wednesday night, I'm going to do this. If y'all show up at church, I'll do this. I could die today. I can't even promise you that I'll preach this sermon that's in this bulletin tonight. I'm trusting that I'll be here tonight. But God might have other plans. I may not be here tonight. My friends, we have to recognize the limitation of how we speak as human beings. But we also have to recognize that God, as sovereign king, is not limited as we are limited. He has the ability to keep His Word. His Word cannot fail to stand. Paul says that. I want to point back to that again in Romans 9. Whatever answer you want to give to the dilemma you're facing, do not say God's Word has failed to stand. Because that is not the case. God's Word will always stand. And so again, there is nothing outside His control. He can guarantee His promises. This text assures me that if Christ can uphold, govern, and direct all things, I do not have to waste one minute of my life worrying about His ability to keep the promises that He's made to me. Compared to upholding the universe, the promises that He's made to me in Christ Jesus are small. I mean, they're glorious and they are great. But when you think about His power, My friends, you recognize we're not taking a chance on trusting Him. We are trusting in the One who is all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-glorious. And so what does that mean? That means that we can trust His promises. The One who states that all those who are fallen in Adam can find hope in Christ simply by trusting the Gospel, that the second person of the Trinity entered time, took on a tent of flesh, came under the law, was obedient to the law, never sinned, fulfilled the law, went to Calvary's cross, took the curse of sinners upon Himself in order to redeem sinners, and that all who repent of their sin and trust in Him will find life in Him. Like that is the promise of the gospel. And that we can trust because we serve a God who can do all things whatsoever He's promised. There is nothing that can prevent His powerful work. This, by the way, is the argument of Paul again in Romans chapter 8. If God has begun this work in you, Paul says it elsewhere, right? I am fully convinced that the God who began a good work in me will see it through to completion. But in Romans 8, what does he say? The God who has justified you will inevitably glorify you. There is nothing that can derail it. Nothing that can derail it. Why? What is more powerful than God? What is higher than His purpose? Who can interfere? Who can derail And I'll give you a little hint. The answer is no one, nothing, nobody, right? Because if there is something that can derail God's plan, then it's greater than He is, and He's no longer God. Of necessity, by definition, for Him to be God, there is no greater force that can derail His plan. So, my friends, we need to think about this. There is nothing that can prevent the powerful work of God, the Spirit in us, sanctifying us and glorifying us. Paul intended Romans 8 to be a word of of encouragement to us as believers that what God has started, He will see through. So how can we trust in such a promise? That's a big promise, right? How can I be sure that nothing can take me out of His hand? Well, He said nothing and no one can take you out of my hand. Is His word enough? Is His word sufficient? Can we trust in His promise? Well, this text tells us yes, because Christ is the one who upholds all things by the word of His power, His powerful word, by such a glorious power that our minds cannot even comprehend, cannot even begin to comprehend the fullness of what this text is telling us. 
I can't. I know it's glorious. I know it's awesome. I know that in some way Christ is keeping all things together. In Him all things consist, are upheld. All things are moved, governed, directed. But I can't comprehend that fully in my mind. I'm a human being. But I know what it tells me. That this Christ who can do this can keep His promise to me. As Spurgeon so simply put it, Surely, if Christ can uphold all things, then praise God, He can uphold me. To that, I just want to add a hearty amen.